Storyline, it's so good to be together, and thank you so much for everyone who canceled their spring break plans just to be here today. I appreciate that. You know, I saw this video last week, and I thought, it's just so great. It's so great. Are you looking forward to your birthday party? Not one bit. <laughs> right? Well, you know what? Who is at like, uh, you know, at 10, maybe, at 110? I get her point, right? I guess she told one of the interviewers earlier that it seems like just yesterday I was 100. <laughs> now, that's not the way the interview is supposed to go, though, right? That is not what anybody was anticipating. But Flossie isn't playing games anymore. Like, she's past that stage of life. She knows who she is. She knows what she wants. She knows what she needs. And she just isn't afraid to let anybody know if you're going to ask. And for the last month, really, that's kind of what we've been trying to get at in a way. We've been looking at the way of Jesus, the practices. Some people call them the spiritual disciplines. or It's just the ways that, that Jesus engaged in life. And we've been looking at some of these in the hope that we might gain some traction on figuring out who we are and what we need and what we want and what's the difference between those two things. And... and Really, that is essentially what these ways of Jesus come down to. They're about our maturation. They're about, really, our transformation. Now, there are a lot of ways to think about human growth and human flourishing, transformation and change, but one that resonates for me and one that I've used with my students for a long time kind of goes like this. Normally, our strongest desires, the things that move us in life from moment to moment are not the same as our deepest desires. Those things that when we think about life on the whole, like what it is that we really want our life to add up to. So it's it usually, once again, our strongest desires are not the same as our deepest desires. And so one way to think about human flourishing or human change or transformation is to, to think of it this way. To be transformed is to see our deepest desires become our strongest desires. Some people would say for them to be integrated, okay? And so this doesn't happen magically. It takes some time. It doesn't happen automatically. It requires attention and intention. And so we need to, like the song this morning says, we do need to take some time. We do need to realize that we're in the middle of a ride, a very long ride, because real and lasting change, it's not magical, it's not instantaneous, it actually happens through training, training. And that's really what the ways of Jesus are about. It's taking on a very deliberate way of life in order for our hearts to kind of come back in order instead of being out of order is one way to think about it. I saw a quote, um, this oh, it was a couple weeks ago now, in a bookstore, this is what it, it's from the Navy SEALs, and it says this. In a crisis, you don't rise to the occasion, you sink to your level of training. <laughs> so wise, so good, and when we look at how Jesus lived and how he invited his followers to live, it seems like he, he agrees with that. Okay, so this week we're going to turn to another way of Jesus, one that the Bible um, takes great pains to say that he actually regularly practiced in his life. 
And this way, this practice, I think it's critical for our transformation. And the way, the practice, is prayer. Now, prayer is a big, huge, complex issue, and it's one for sure that I am no expert, expert on. I struggle with my prayer life quite a bit, actually. And, and as always, so this morning, I'm not up here like, you know, the guru trying to let you guys know everything there is to know about prayer. That's not what this is about this morning. What we're doing this morning, we're just going to scratch the surface of this big, complicated, beautiful, confusing topic in the hopes of like maybe cultivating some curiosity, maybe creating some conversation around this subject. And, and as we, I think we have to start off with this, just to admit this, that maybe more than any other subject, maybe more than any other practice that Jesus is inviting us into, prayer is something that a lot of people think that they know a lot about. So what'd you, uh, what'd you pray for? I can't tell you that it won't come true. Okay, it's not like blowing out your birthday candles. <laughs> All right, I prayed for Mrs. Donnelly. You know, the one who broke her hip? Well, that's sweet. Yeah, and I prayed for these Gucci shoes I love to go on sale. <laughs> what? Yeah, they're black with these silver strappy things, but they're a little out of my price range, so, you know. <laughs> uh, you know, you, you can't pray for shoes. Why not? Because you're not supposed to pray for petty things. Well, at church today, I prayed for my raise, and I got that. That's what you were praying for? Huh. Okay, you obviously have no idea what you're doing here. Uh, an extra hundred bucks a week says I do. <laughs> okay, how can I explain this to you? Let's pretend I'm God. I... Well, gee, I'd love to end world hunger, but I'm too busy looking for cheap shoes for Carrie. Oh, well. Okay, you know what? I believe that you can, you can pray for the important things, and you can also pray for the not-so-important things. God's a pretty bright guy. He can figure it out. Well, that's how you think it works? Yeah, that's how I think it works. Okay. You, you have no idea what you're talking about. You don't even know how to pray right. You're kneeling by the bed like a five-year-old. I will pray any way I want to. Fine. Pray the way you want. I look like a moron. What is your problem? My problem is you're using God as your own personal genie. I am not. You are, too. You, you think that if you, you want a pair of shoes, all you got to do is pray for them, and poof, they're new shoes. Well, that's not the way it works, okay? This does not equal this. I did not do anything wrong. Once again, let's pretend I'm God. Okay, you know what? Don't do God again. You do about the worst God I've ever heard. You know what? That's it. You're done. You're done praying. It's over. Excuse me? Yeah, that's right. I forbid it. Oh, oh you forbid it? Yeah. Okay. You know what? I just thought of a few more things I want to pray for. Oh, really? What is there, a lipstick out there that you actually don't have? <laughs> really, you know what? Try praying with this in the background. Oh! Look at that, Dallas! Oh yeah, bring it! Yeah! Okay, you know what? Fine. I will just use my prayers to cancel out your prayers. Oh, bring it! Oh, I'm bringing it. You're going down. Oh, it's hysterical. I love that so much. So, um, to get at how Jesus viewed prayer, let's turn to a time in his life that was actually quite tumultuous. Um, 
he had been traveling extensively inside of Israel, teaching to huge crowds, performing many miracles, and in the process, he had gathered quite a bit of fame, actually, and quite a, a, a lot of followers, as well as some very powerful enemies. And in the passage that we're going to look at, Jesus is in the home of two sisters, Martha is one of them, and Martha in this scene, she's really busy, working very hard to care for all the guests that have arrived with Jesus, and the other sister is Mary, who is sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening. Now, Martha's not happy about this, and she kind of confronts Jesus and says, hey, you know, Jesus, tell Mary to, you know, get moving here, and this is how Jesus responds, Martha, Martha. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. Now, this is a little bit surprising. I want to cut Martha a break here, okay? <laughs> because Martha has been following Jesus along with Mary, and they both kind of have a feel for how he lives. And Jesus was a very active guy. He was an activist, if you will. He wasn't anything like typical holy men of the time, or even our time, really, who, who spent their time like in isolated places or deep philosophical reflection, esoteric speculation, or detached meditation. Jesus had calloused hands. He had dirt under his fingernails and dust on his feet. He smelled of sawdust and fish and the road. He was a man of the people. He got out there. In fact, just before this scene, um, just before we, this scene in the Bible, he had sent out his followers. He sent them away from him, out into the world, in order to love people. So he's a very active religious figure of that time. But what we see beginning with this interaction with, with Martha and Mary is Jesus turning from how our lives will look when we follow him, activated, passionate, engaged, generous, self-giving, kind of like Martha is here, to what it takes to sustain that kind of life. A real, everyday, and I love the way one of my favorite writers puts this, conversational relationship with God, which is more like Mary in this scene. In fact, Right after this exchange, the next thing that happens in the Bible goes like this. Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. He followed it up with a quick little illustration. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? If you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, this prayer has come to be known as the Lord's Prayer. So different um, denominations of 
of Protestant Christianity and the Catholic Church has a little bit different variation of that, but it comes from this passage, the Lord's Prayer. Many of us are familiar with it, but here's the issue. I know that for many of us, when, the, when prayer comes up, our eyes kind of glaze over, and here's why. The topic of prayer seems like something that God is very interested in, like God wants us to pray. Maybe he even he needs us to pray. You know, he needs something, like he needs something from us, something that, you know, this is important to him. But if we're honest, at least if I'm honest, prayer kind of seems like this, it has very little to do with my real everyday life, which is exactly what Jesus is teaching us here and why it's so important. Prayer, according to Jesus, is not about what God wants or what God requires. Prayer like all of the practices of Jesus, like all of the ways of Jesus, are not part of some religious contract that we make with God. They are part of what the Bible calls a covenant. God is offering us. So just real quickly, when we talk a lot about the difference between religion and the gospel of grace, this is another way to think about it. Religion is like a contract, and a contract is like tit for tat. It's like, it's transactional. Two equal parties exchanging goods. I do A for you, and in exchange, you do B for me. And contracts are enforced by punishment. Like if, if I don't measure up or you don't measure up, we get in trouble. All of us participate in the contract of relationships all the time when we go to work, Monday through Friday, in this boss-worker contract. Workers give their time and effort to the boss. The boss gives the workers money in exchange. But covenants are very different. And that is what the gospel of grace is about. It's a covenant relationship between us and God. And a covenant is a me-for-you relationship, which makes it transformational, not transactional. And here's why. Because for a covenant to work, the, the trusting party, the, the lesser party, has to trust in the goodness of the other. And there's no need for punishment because failure to trust is its own punishment. An example of a, there's several examples in modern life of covenant relationship, marriage, uh, children, parent and ch children. But one that maybe we don't think about is like a, a doctor and a patient relationship. The doctor gives orders. You go to the doctor, he gives you orders. And the patient, if, we trust in the doctor, we're transformed. We go from sickness to health. Through that, faith and trust in the doctor. So prayer is like that. Prayer is not a religious ritual. It's not a transactional contract. It's not that something that God needs from us or is waiting from us so that then he'll give us something. Prayer is a gift of grace. It is part of the covenant of love that God has with us. And one of the ways, one of the ways that we trust in his love for us. So prayer is sitting at the feet of Jesus. It is the opening of our eyes. It's the readying of our hands. It's the breaking of our hearts to experience the love and grace of God and then express it into the world. So prayer is not about what God wants at all. Prayer is not a requirement of God, it's a gift from God, and it's not about his desires, it's about ours.
So Jesus' first followers, like all of us, they had many really strong and deep desires. And so they asked him, will you teach us to pray? And this is how Jesus responds. Suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. And and suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door's already locked and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. 
Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. So I want to look at this first, this way that Jesus taught us to pray, and the story that he followed, the story here that he follows that up with immediately, and just throw out a few things for us to consider this morning that jump off the page for me about the gift of prayer. So Jesus is encouraging us here to share our desires. That, that's what the first gift of prayer is, is share our desires totally, completely, as they are. Like, don't hold back. Ask for the raise in the new pair of shoes. Like, don't think twice about it. Where are you? Who are you? What's going on in your life? Okay? Now, this is tough for some of us. It's tough for me. Like, when I make requests, I almost never tell it exactly like it is. Like, I edit it, edit it, you clean it up, you know, like make sure it's reasonable. When I ask someone for a favor or for some help, I wanna make sure that I'm asking in the right way for the right reason. I certainly wanna make sure I'm asking for the right thing. I think most of us generally, generally we try to make it as easy and as simple as possible, right? At least most of us. And this is why, by the way, I, I always cringe when we're out to dinner and the waiter or the waitress comes over and asks Lisa, what would you like? And because it is the beginning of, I mean, this is gonna be a novel, okay? Like, it is not gonna be easy. It's gonna be so complicated. You know, she asks questions like, are the tomatoes fresh? Or do you saute that or broil it? Or can I have this on the side? You know, I could take a nap while she's ordering from a restaurant. You know, what's the name of the farmer who raised the chicken? I mean, that's, this is when, <laughs> it's just crazy, the questions that she asks. But, um, not when you consider what Jesus is actually showing us here. He's saying, share all of your un desires, like uncensored, unfiltered, unaltered, not dressed up with justifications or cleaned up with the right motivations. Just share them all with God. Just ask, no editing. And more than that, look at how he tells us to come to God. He uses the story of a friend coming to another friend's house in the middle of, night, of the night, and it's not for some like life and death situation. It's for a loaf of bread for guests. Like, what in the world? Now, why? Why would Jesus encourage us to go to God like this? With what, you know, the translator of the Bible here says is shameless audacity. Another translator put it this way, a persistence that borders on rudeness. Now, I think for me, this is what this means about prayer, that there's no system to prayer. It's not a religious requirement. Prayer is not a ritual, and it's certainly not a contract. Prayer is not a mantra, and it's not a magic spell. We don't have to face a certain direction, assume a certain pose, fold our hands the right way, burn candles, chant, genuflect. Prayer is a gift of grace. And because of that, we can bring our uncensored, unfiltered, and complicated, even contradictory sometimes, desires to God with a persistence that borders on rudeness. Now, there are only several relationships in, in, a, in real life that come close to the kind of relationship that, that Jesus is saying God wants with us. We talked about doctor-patient for a second. Um, marriage is another covenant relationship, but I think the one that works even better for most of us is this parent-child relationship. 
It's a covenant. And it opens up a connection with children that we rarely, if ever, have with anyone else. When our kids were little, our, the first house that we had here in Stevensville, we lived in a split level, a bi-level house. And so um, here's what this meant is that we lived on the second floor. And um, so, you know, whenever the kids were outside having fun or there's any kind of trouble going on in the yard, it wasn't convenient for me at all to get there. I mean, the kids would call for me and not only would I have to turn off the TV, then you got to brush the crumbs in between the sofa cushions, you know, and it just, you know, it was a big ordeal to get down to the yard and I would, you know, have to walk all the way downstairs to play catch or hide and seek or to see the ant colony or the caterpillar or whatever the kids wanted. And because of all this effort involved on my end, there may have been times when I pretended not to hear the kids, right? But they wouldn't give up. They just wouldn't give up. Jimmy would march inside, come up the stairs, grab me by the ankle, like pulling on my leg, dad, dad, daddy, dada, dad, dad. And Jenna was even, you know, she was even bolder. She would crawl up on the couch, sit on my chest, grab the remote and turn off the TV. It's one of the first things she learned how to do. Shameless audacity, right? And you know what? It worked. Now we know that works, why? It's because of my relationship with them. They trusted that I loved them. Now, they might not have articulated it that way, but they trusted that I loved them. They, they wouldn't describe it, but they, they wouldn't use this word, of course, but they understood that we had a covenant relationship based in and out of my love for them and my goodness for them as a father. And as a father, I was and remain completely dedicated to their flourishing. It's like the mission, central mission, once you have children, of your life is the flourishing of your children. This is why the practice of prayer is a gift. It connects us to the God who is dedicated to us like that. And this begins with shamelessly sharing our desires. But it doesn't end there. That's really important to see. It doesn't end there. Jesus is also showing us here that in the process of being that open and that honest, God is not just, he doesn't want us to just share our desires with him. He's going to hone, hone, aim, cultivate, and shape our desires. He's not done with us. Okay, he's not, you know, I dream a genie. That's not what's going on. Now, for some of us, this is kind of the other shoe dropping, right? Like, oh, Mike, I knew it. You know, storyline, you talk this game about, you know, belonging, but no matter what you believe, or God's on your side, blah, 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 blah. But now you're up there talking about prayer, telling me that it's going to limit me. It's going to constrain me. And that's exactly what I don't want, Mike. I don't want my desire shaped. I want my freedom. And I hear that a lot, and I get it. But I think we have to think that through a little bit. One of my favorite writers is David Brooks. He's an author, he's written many books. We've had community groups that have actually gone through one of his books called The Second Mountain. It's, I would highly recommend it. But um, he's also a columnist for the New York Times. And he frequently, what he does is he tries to bring together um, the best of modern science 
and the best of ancient wisdom. He brings those together in his columns, as we often do here when we're together. And he wrote a column, uh, gosh, it's almost 10 years ago now, titled The Deepest Self. And in it, he addresses all of the studies that social science and psychology is doing to come up with a purely scientific and evolutionary account for everything that makes us human. Okay, so uh, for example, an evolutionary or a biological reason for why we love, why we are moral, why we make commitments, okay? And Brooks is very open to that perspective, as am I, frankly. I, I think we can learn a lot about ourselves from studies like that, from science. And, and so, but he points something out that, that I, the studies assume about human nature, about what it means to be human. And I think it's just such a great insight, okay? It goes like this. Uh, Brooks argues that science assumes that we have two things going on. We have like the deeper level that's driven by biology and instinct. That's who we are at our core. That's our deepest self. And over the top of that is another level, and it's this thin veneer of like social convention and rationality, okay? That, that, and that's trying to control our underlying subconscious, our deep selves, if you will. So the assumption is the thin level often fails to control the deep self, all right? And that is like the studies that try to point out scientifically what makes us human all assume that model of a human being, okay? But then Brooks points this out, and I think it's brilliant. Listen to this. When we describe someone as deep, we don't mean that they are animalistic or impulsive. We mean the exact opposite. We mean that they have achieved a quiet, dependable mind by being rooted in something spiritual and permanent, depth is something we cultivate over time. We form relationships that either turn the core piece of ourselves into something more stable and disciplined or more fragmented and disorderly. We begin with our natural impulses and biases, and then we carve out depth according to the quality of the commitments that we make. And often this depth is formed by fighting against our natural evolutionary predispositions. Babies are not deep. Old people can be, depending on how they've chosen to live their lives. But the people that we admire are those who are rooted in their own desires and nature, but have learned to surpass them. Now, I don't know about you, but I read that and it was just like, yes. I, that, I, I believe that's right. I think Brooks is on to something. We all know people who are a slave to their desires. The way we've been putting it in this series is they're a slave to their strongest desires over and against their deepest desires. Our natural instincts, our strongest desires don't lead us to freedom. They lead us to bondage. We know this. I think that's true for our human experience. Following our naturally strongest desires don't make us deep, make us shallow and hollow. 
and brittle. Deep, mature, substantial, truly free people are those who have stood against their instincts, constrained and trained their strongest desires to find the freedom that comes from living out our deepest desires daily. And maybe that's not, maybe you don't resonate with that, but for me, that's what I want. I resonate with that so deeply. And, and that is what prayer is for. We share our desires, and then God begins to shape them. And by doing so, it changes us from the inside out. C.S. Lewis is an author that we talk about a lot, and he got married very late in life, and not long after he got married, he discovered that his wife had terminal cancer. And um, it just broke him. It was a very difficult season in his life. And he talked about and shared with his friends about how much he was praying for her. We're going to watch a short scene from the movie Shadowlands, which is about the story of C.S. Lewis's life, where he's just received a little bit of good news about his wife. Jack, what news? Uh, good news, I think, Harry. Yes, good news. Very glad, Jack. Thank you, Christopher. Thank you. Christopher can scoff, but I know how hard you've been praying. Huh. Now, God is answering your prayer. That's not why I pray, Harry. I pray because I can't help myself. I pray because I'm helpless. I pray because, I pray because the need flows out of me all the time, waking and sleeping. It doesn't change God, it changes me. I think that's exactly right. I think that's what God, that what Jesus is offering us when he teaches us how to pray. When we share our desires and then trust God to shape them, according to one theologian, a man named R.C. Sproul, a few things begin to happen. And the first one is this. We develop a desire for joy that goes beyond ourself. He teaches us to pray, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Jesus is inviting us into a wholeness, a goodness, a beauty that is beyond getting just what we want. So prayer is the great reminder that we are not the center of the universe, and we're not even the center of our own universe. There is a great freedom that comes in that kind of self-forgetfulness. Another thing that happens in us through prayer is that we develop a desire for wonder and gratitude, like beyond discontentment and dissatisfaction of life. Give us this day our daily bread. Just today, just enough for today, and rejoice in that. God will shape our desires to see what we do have versus what we don't. Several years ago now, it's been more than that actually, I had a very dear friend and mentor who was in a long battle with cancer. 
And she was always honest with me and with others about how difficult that was and how tough it could be. And yet, I saw God develop in her this incredible desire for gratitude and wonder. Gratitude and wonder. She noticed everything. She was like this heat-seeking missile for gratitude and wonder. The things that she would notice when we were, t- when we're, when we were together, it, it, it just blew me away. The weather, a smile, a little child walking by, a simple kindness, not even maybe, maybe that she witnessed. None of this was ever lost on her. I saw her as she battled cancer. God developed that in her more and more. And I saw her overwhelmed at times with gratitude for things like the treatments that made her sick. My natural desire would be to point out, to linger in, to focus on what is wrong, what is missing. But Susan, shaped by God through prayer, was transformed. She was transformed. She understood that prayer was a gift of grace. And through it, she became the gift of grace herself to me and to so many other people. She was completely transformed by it. A third thing that happens uh, in prayer is that we develop a desire for humility over self-importance. There's another great line in this prayer. Forgive us, our one translation says, trespasses as we forgive others. See, as we confess our frailties, our faults, our foibles, our weaknesses, we embrace, what we're doing is we are embracing who we really are and who we're not and who we're not yet. We are embracing our own limitations, our own humanity. And when we nurture a humility like that, it it becomes the basis for healing relationships, for whole relationships, and for healthy relationships. And relationships like that are the foundation of a flourishing life. So this shaping of our shared desires is the gracious and lifelong process of transformation that God has in mind for us. He does this through all of the practices that we're going to look at. All of the ways of Jesus are about that same project. But prayer is like the direct link, the direct link to that happening. It will make us us deep, a person of substance, who finds our joy in the joy of others and a grateful heart about our just real everyday lives that we'll just begin to discover are filled with joy and wonder. Prayer is all about allowing God to be on our side and getting ourselves on his. Somebody came up to Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War and said, Something about whose side God is on. And Lincoln responded like this. My concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on his. And that's what prayer is about. 
We talk so often about God is already on our side, and that's true. That's never not true. Prayer is part of the transformation that gets us on his. And now for me, that leaves us with just really one critical question left. We share our desires. Our desires are shaped. But the question is, will we ever see our desires? To get at this, Jesus asks a question. What father will give their child a snake when he asks for a fish? Now, Jesus is telling us that the way we know we will ultimately see our deepest desires is not because of proper prayer technique or keeping our end of the bargain or fulfilling our end of some religious ritual or contract. The way that we can know we will that, that God will hear our desires and we will ultimately see them fulfilled someday is because no good father harms their child. It's not because of how we pray or what we pray. It's because of who we pray to. Our loving and good father who is on our side. One writer said, I find that I desire things that will destroy me in the end. I think we can all relate to that, especially when we're talking about our strongest desires. We often desire things that will destroy us in the end. And we, we all know that we have asked for, we have prayed for snakes. We have. They didn't seem like it at the time, but these were things that we look back on and we go, oh my gosh, had we gotten them, it, they would have been fatal. They would have poisoned me. But that isn't always the case, if we're honest, also, right? Like maybe you've gone through some heartbreaking unanswered prayer. I know that I have. I mean, just on my knees, begging God for something that I just, I know it wasn't a snake. I know it was something good. Like maybe the healing of a, a dear and precious loved one, and it didn't happen. So what do we do with that? Because the truth is, I don't know why God sometimes answers yes and sometimes no. But I do know that Jesus is trying to get across to us that when the answer is no, it's because of something good and loving. So this last quick question, how can we trust that? How can we trust that when the answer is no, that it's for a good and loving reason? And again, we have to go back to the prayer life, the way of Jesus. The night that he was betrayed, he's arrested, here's what he does. He prays. This is the Son of God coming to his heavenly Father. He knew what was about to happen. He shared his unaltered, his unfiltered desire. God, if there's any way to save the world without me suffering, let's do it that way. Can we please do it that way? It's an incredible moment. Three times Jesus prayed, please, no. I don't want this. And we know this real desire of Jesus that he shared went unanswered. Why? For God to answer this prayer would have meant love loses. But to know God was faithful to us through even his own suffering, means we can trust him to be up to something good in ours. That's how we know. This is what the Bible says. 
with God on our side like this, how can we lose? If God didn't hesitate to put everything on the line for us, embracing our condition and exposing himself to the worst by sending his own son, is there anything else he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? I'm absolutely convinced that nothing, nothing living or dead, angel or demonic, today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love because of the way that Jesus, our master, has embraced us. This is what prayer is ultimately about. We share our strongest desires and God shapes our deepest desires and in the end we will see our desires fulfilled by our good God who is forever on our side. I won't pretend that we can control the night or what kind of road we're on or where we will see the light. But right now I'm talking to you. I'm looking into your eyes. Right now I'm trying to show you
Let's hope long before we're 110 years old that we will sense that about God, that he is on our side. And that means that he is graciously shaping our deepest desires into our strongest ones. Just imagine for a little bit what life would look like, what it would feel like, what it would live like if that were true. We would be transformed. That is what the way of Jesus is for. And prayer is the practice that fuels that kind of life and that kind of life change. It reminds us that God is on our side and our best life is found when we are on his. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this time and this place and this opportunity to be together. God, I ask that you would give us your open eyes, steady hands, and broken heart, that we may find our joy in being on your side, transformed more and more into your likeness through prayer. As we leave this morning, help us to grow and remain open alert, expectant, and dependent on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for coming, folks. We'll see you next Sunday.